Let's turn together now to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and hopefully everybody is at least within eye shot of a copy of our church covenant. If you're not, scooch over or look over somebody's shoulder. We're not going to be staring at it the whole time, but we're going to consider it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, what I'm going to do is read sort of a a spattering of verses from this chapter, verses 12, 14, 18, and then 24 to 27. I'm not going to be doing an exposition of these verses. If by the end of the day you are still confused as to why these verses are relevant to everything that we're going to consider, then come and ask and I'll explain, but I don't think it'll be unclear. We'll be looking at these verses several times 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12, 14, 18, and then 24 to 27. Beginning at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. And then in verse 24, the first full sentence. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. There's the negative. He does not desire division. Here's the positive. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would continue to bless us, continue to add Your blessing to the reading of Your Word. I pray that You would bless us as a congregation, as a church, as an expression of Christ's mystical body. And Lord, do that work now that only You can do, and that You do only within Your mystical body, which is... Come in the power of Your Spirit and make application of Your Word to Your people to unite our hearts together in love for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said last week, whenever a church body finds itself in the midst of the types of trying things that we went through last week, it's not the best plan to just breeze on through and ignore it as if nothing has happened. And as I thought about all that has happened in the past two weeks and the things that we had to uh, do last Lord's Day and even other related issues that have arisen since last Sunday night, I believe it would be in our best interest to spend another Lord's Day, not necessarily with matters of church discipline, but at least considering a bit of practical help 
uh, airplanes don't just drop flat out of the sky. They, they come down sort of at a, at a, a smooth uh, declining pace. And that's kind of how I want to work our way out of this. If we wanted to think of last week sort of like emergency surgery that was meant to correct a broken growth plate, then consider this week sort of like a seven-day checkup where I'm going to prescribe some exercises that need to take place to make sure that the body can grow and work well in light of the changes that have taken place, in light of the corrections. And so to this end, I want to return to our church covenant and give attention to one of the points that I think is very fundamental in healthy church life. So if you're looking at it, I want to just begin overviewing the whole thing, just real quickly, so that you can kind of see how this is laid out. A lot of times when we're reading this in a membership interview, we don't think about these things, and I don't draw attention to them. The first section deals with the concept of entering into a covenant. And the statement there is essentially that having been born again, believing that we have been truly converted, we believe that we've been led by the Holy Spirit to enter into a covenant with this congregation. The second section deals with the commitments to the church that we make as a whole. The church, uh, we might consider it as an institution. Essentially committing to give yourself to the health of the church, broadly speaking. And you can see things like walking together in Christian love, striving together in knowledge, holiness, peace, sustaining worship, testing the, the preaching that goes forward, things that affect the church broadly. Section 3 deals with committing to personal and family godliness. You see there references to things like family worship, personal devotion, the discipleship of our children, how we deal with our acquaintances, how we deal with people out in the world. The commitment there is essentially we will do our part personally and as families to maintain a healthy church in as much as it lies within our power as individuals and as families. The fourth section deals with our commitment toward the other members in the church individually. And there again, we are essentially covenanting to do our part in our personal relationships with one another in the church to maintain a healthy church. Section 5 deals with ongoing faithfulness even in another body. You've agreed, if you're a member of this church, say, if I have to leave, if Providence takes me to another church, I'm going to try to find one where I can keep these same commitments. If we believe these commitments are biblical and godly commitments, then why would we change them if we went somewhere else? You see. And then section 6 deals with the commitment to willingly come under the governing umbrella of the ministry of the Word in this congregation. So you see the idea. We're entering into a covenant. We're going to give ourselves to the church as a whole. We're going to do our part personally. We're going to give ourselves personally to the individual members of the church. If we do have to leave, we're going to maintain these same practices And we understand that all this means being governed by the ministry of the Word here. That's the overall layout of the covenant. Now, I want to draw your attention to that fourth section, dealing with our commitments that we've made toward the other individuals in this room, if you're a member of this church. And I want to first point out that there is such a section. There is a section in our church covenant that deals with how we will act toward the other members individually. So to join this church, to be a member of this church, is not simply saying, I agree to go to church there. That's a part of it, but that's not all of it. 
There is such a section, and there are such commitments that are laid out in this paragraph. Joining this church is a commitment to the specific individual people who make up this church. We have to have some concept of the church as an institution, a particular sphere of government instituted by Christ with boundaries, with rules about who's in and who's out, with guidelines for acceptable behavior, with officers who wield Christ-given authority. We have to understand that big picture of the church, but we also at the same time have to understand that the church is a body made up of particular members, particular people. And this is why I typically say when somebody joins the church, the newest members have sort of the great advantage of taking three months and looking at all of us and saying, do I really want to commit to these people? Those who've been with us the longest are at a great disadvantage because we covenanted to do these things with people we didn't even know yet. You see, that's just how it works out. We have to understand the big picture, but we also have to understand the commitments that we've made to each individual member of the church. And the fact of the matter is, biblically speaking, there's no way to do either one of these, or, or I should say rid ourselves of either one of these perspectives without destroying both of them. There's no way to profess commitment to specific people in a congregation apart from following the guidelines which explain what that commitment looks like. You can't say, I will give myself to this church. And by that I mean I'll come on Sunday mornings and then I'll leave and I'll not see them anymore. You don't get to make up your own rules. You are joining a body already established. So that assumes you're going to give yourself to the, the overarching uh, guidelines of the church as an institution. At the same time, there's no way to come under this particular sphere of church government, which is the church, without submitting to that government as it's manifested in a specific church under the rule of specific officers. In other words, you can't say, oh, I love the church. I'm a part of the church. So, so but I, I don't go to a church anywhere. There's this idea of the invisible, the universal church, that really we can't put our finger on. We can't attend there. We don't submit to anyone there. We don't give ourselves to people there. The way that this is manifested is in the local church. If we love the church in its broadest ideal, then we're going to love it in its local expression. And if we give ourselves to the church in its local expression, in doing that we show our commitment to the church in its universal ideal. So sections 2 and 4 of our church covenant are related in this way. They're all related, obviously. But these two are related very specifically. I give myself to the church broadly. I also give myself to the individuals. And giving myself to the individuals is the only way to prove that I've actually given myself to the church Broadly, So the fourth, this fourth section is dealing with how we engage with the members of this particular church and what we have all agreed to do to, for, and with one another. Now if we break down that fourth section, we would see first this uh, commitment to brotherly oversight, watching over one another in brotherly love. We typically like brotherly love, not, not crazy about the watching over one another. But the watching over one another happens in brotherly love, brotherly oversight. There's a commitment to prayer for one another. Remember one another in prayer. A commitment to physical aid, to aid one another in sickness and distress. There's a, a commitment to respectful social interaction, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech. 
Then there's a commitment to living in harmony with the brothers and sisters here. We'll be slow to take offense, always ready for reconciliation, and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. While being a church member does imply overarching commitments to the body as a whole, section 2, most of those can only truly be lived out as we gauge with the individual members, section 4. As we engage with the individuals who make up the body, and specifically how we engage with the individuals that make up the body, we prove our commitment to the body as a whole. Let me use an illustration. This is what the Apostle Paul does in the text we just read. He, he says, think about the physical body. It's like that with the body of Christ. So I want to do that same thing. In terms of a physical body, if you're going to be serious about your overall health, you have to pay attention to the particular parts and functions of your body. And only in direct correlation to the manner in which you consider the specific parts and functions, arms, legs, breathing, blood pressure, can you actually be said to be concerned about the overall health of your body. So somebody who practices intermittent fasting in order to enter into ketosis to lose weight, but also smokes a pack of cigarettes a day, a day is going to have a hard time convincing me you're actually concerned about your health. You're not concerned about your health. You're concerned about your look. See, it's how you give yourself to the individual parts. Dealing with the parts proves that you have a concern for the whole. And Paul says it's the same with the church, the body of Christ. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Speaking to that church in Corinth, you are the body. It's as we interact with and engage the individual members and functions of the local church that we actually fulfill our obligations to the church as a whole, if we want to use the phrase invisible or universal church. And our true commitment to the church as a whole, as an institution, will be shown in how we interact with the members of the local church. Again, dealing with the specific parts proves that you have a concern for the whole. You're going to have a hard time proving your concern for the bride of Christ to Christ Himself if you're not showing that concern in the way that you interact with the members. You can't say, Christ, I love you, and I love your church. I just don't like all these people that make it up. He's going to say, I don't believe that for a second. I say all that to say that this section that deals with our personal commitments to one another is crucial in the existence and proper constitution of our church as a whole. In, to say it another way, if we take out this fourth section of our church covenant, we don't have a church. We might love to get together in fellowship, but if we don't gather for worship and those things which are distinctively given to the church to do, then we're not a church. Now, most people would agree with that. You, you, you've got to get together and worship. A church gets together and worships and does church things. The flip side of that is also true. You might be devoted to perfect attendance every Lord's Day, but if we're not engaging in the personal duties with individual saints that, ha that are exercised within the body, we're not a church. People who come together and sit and leave, that's not a church. 
They might be worshiping, but it's not a church. There's more to being a body than fellowship, and there's more to being a church than merely Sunday worship. The picture of the Scriptures, or the pictures that the Scriptures paint of a church, is that of a living organism that does certain things as a united whole, and crucial to that is the interaction of the various parts with each other. Back to 1 Corinthians 12, God has so composed the body that there be no division in the body. Now most of us understand that. Nobody likes church splits. Nobody likes division. Nobody likes a divisive person. Nobody likes false teaching, false doctrine that would creep into the church and and split it. And We all understand that. War against division. Why? Well, God has composed the body so that there would be no division. If I'm, this is the illustration I gave with my children last night, if I'm standing here and my hand is back there, regardless of what happened, this is not good. The body is made so that division doesn't happen. We understand that, but then the positive side is what we we typically forget. But that, God has so composed the body that the members may have the same care for one another. So it's not merely that we avoid division, but we labor to care for one another. So we're coming back to our covenant, and it's in this section dealing with the personal commitment toward each individual in the body that we have a, a reference to this phrase, Christian sympathy. If we piece together the syntax, we come up with this. We further engage to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling. If we're going to manifest our devotion to Christ's bride, it will be in our engagement with the members of that bride, that body. And specific to the engagement with her members is our commitment to cultivate Christian sympathy. And in so much as we cultivate Christian sympathy with the individual members of His body, we manifest our devotion to Christ's bride and thus to Christ Himself. So that's my topic for today, cultivating Christian sympathy. It will be a topical expository sermon. But I do believe that this is something specifically uh, crucial to a church. And when it is practiced, it ensures that our whole body is going to grow together and to maturity. Now I'll say this from the outset before we move into Christian sympathy, if you cannot do this, if you cannot cultivate Christian sympathy, you are showing you have no love for Christ. And you can say, I love to read the scriptures, I love to sing songs, I love to learn doctrines, I love to... You can say all of these things, but if you cannot cultivate sympathy for the members of the body, you do not love Jesus Christ. And then secondly, as we consider this today, and and I I understand this, you might begin to think at some point, because we're going to do this this morning and this evening, you're going to think that I I just want to hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Just give me some, some doctrinal meat to elevate me and my thinking and my emotions and send me on my way. Well, to which I would respond to that, number one, we're going to get there. It's here. And I, I, hopefully you trust me to handle practical matters like this. And it never enters my mind that I would not 
get there. As a matter of fact, this entire sermon came from me studying Christ and His sympathy and flowed from that. So we're going to get there. But at the same time, your true adoration for Christ is shown not by your hunger for more information about Him, but in the expression of your love for His bride. In other words, don't pretend to to love a Christ you can't see if you're not willing to think about what it means to love the members of His body that you can see. All of this has to be dealt with, and and it is dealt with in the full counsel of God's Word. So, what I want to do is very simple. I want to explain the phrase, cultivate Christian sympathy. I want to defend it biblically. I want to prove to you that we ought to do this. And then thirdly, I want to explain how we are to do this. We'll do the first two this morning and the last one this evening. So first an exposition of the statement in our church covenant. And I'll say this from the outset to calm the nerves. The first point is the longest one. And then the other ones are shorter. An exposition of the church, the statement in our church covenant. All all I want to do is define the words so that by the time we're done today, we all have the fullness of our covenantal obligation settled in our minds and nobody leaves wondering, what does it mean to cultivate Christian sympathy? I'm still confused on what this means. If if that's the case, I have either failed at my job or you failed to listen. That's, That's my goal. What have we vowed to do? Answer, we have vowed to cultivate Christian sympathy. First, what does it mean to cultivate? I'm going to read read to you many definitions. Some of them overlap in their meaning, but just take note of how they all run along the same tracks. To cultivate means to prepare or dress the ground for crops by tilling, by spreading manure, by sowing seed. To cultivate means to improve by labor or study, to advance the growth of. To cultivate is to labor, to improve or advance, to labor, to make better, to raise or produce by tillage, to foster the growth of. All of those are definitions of the word cultivate. Now what do all these have in common? You get this picture in your mind. They bear with them many implications. Cultivation assumes that there is an end goal. There's a future purpose, a plan. That there is advancement that is needed to get to that goal. We've got we to do something to get there. At present, we're short of that goal. Think of a garden. If I want vegetables in the summer, then early spring, I've got to cultivate. Begin to think, what do I want? If I want tomatoes to grow and I plant cucumbers, we've got a problem. I've got to begin to think, what's my goal? I'm presently short of that goal. I've got to give some specific attention to the ground to achieve that goal. And cultivation assumes or implies a laborious process is going to be required in moving from the present state to that end goal, a process that necessitates special attention. That's what it means to cultivate. The word comes from the root word cultus which means care or labor. It means to devote special attention to. This is why it's often used with reference to worship. Uh, To cultus, a cult, to worship. What does that mean? You're giving special attention to something, some god or deity. It's it's worship. This might be special devotion to the ground to produce crops, special devotion to the mind 
to produce knowledge, special devotion to the heart, to produce various virtues. If we're going to cultivate anything, we have to have a clear goal in mind. We must know the specific actions to be taken to achieve that goal. We must commit to and act upon those particular things. We have to begin where we are and move progressively forward in order to foster growth. And so if we're cultivating Christian sympathy, then we've got to know what it is. We've got to know how to achieve it. We've got to start where we are and begin to give attention to it so that it will grow. So what is Christian sympathy? Christian sympathy is sympathy, which is distinctly Christian in its nature. Now, what does it mean to be Christian? We're not talking about a person, but a virtue like this. What does it mean to be Christian? Surely there is a carnal, secular, natural sympathy. What is a Christian sympathy? Well, I would say to be distinctively Christian when it comes to virtues like this means that it comes from a particular source. It has a particular pattern and it is manifested or has a special realm of application. A source, a pattern, and a realm of application. For a virtue to be a Christian virtue, it must come from God as the source. Specifically through the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. It is produced by the Holy Spirit. We call this Christian because it is a virtue which finds its fullest manifestation in the man Christ Jesus, and because its existence in the believer is through their union with Him by His Holy Spirit. In other words, the source of Christian sympathy or any Christian virtue is God. The source is Christ Jesus. The source is the Holy Spirit of God working in the believer. That's its source. Most human beings can show sympathy. Only Christians can show Christian sympathy produced by the Spirit of God within them. Particular source. For virtue to be distinctively Christian, not only does it have to come from the Spirit of Christ, but it's also that which follows the pattern of Christ Himself. In His earthly ministry, Jesus Christ, true God and true man, full of the Holy Spirit without measure and without limit, displayed in His human nature... Every positive virtue of that humanity to its fullest extent, without impediment, without blemish, without failure, without sin. And that includes sympathy. There is no virtue that we cannot find its fullest, most perfect expression in the man Christ Jesus. And so in the Lord Jesus, we have the pattern for the sympathy which is distinctively Christian. If we're going to cultivate Christian sympathy, it must be the sympathy pattern after His kind of sympathy. Not looking over here somewhere else and saying, well, that looks sympathetic, so I'm going to be like that. No, it's looking at Christ. We can't produce our own kind of sympathy and call it Christian. I'll add to that, we can't produce anything of our own and just call it Christian. We don't have the power to Christianize anything. If something is Christian, it has its source in God and it's patterned after Christ Himself. And So that is Christian which is produced by the Spirit of Christ and has its fullest display in Christ Himself. And if it's going to be a Christian virtue, it also has a special application in a specific realm, a a, a particular place or circumstance. Now, broadly we could say, anywhere there is a true Christian displaying sympathy, then that could potentially be Christian sympathy. 
But more exclusively, I would say Christian sympathy is the kind of sympathy which exists between two or more Christians, and even more limited within the context of the local church. The, the premier example outside of Christ himself would be the sympathy that exists between Christians in a local church. Now, why do I say that? Because the local church is a context like no other where members come together very often with very little, if any, shared background, very little, if any, shared relationship, very little, if any, commonality prior to coming into the congregation. And yet, by God's Spirit, we come together and have a camaraderie that can only be described or attributed to God Himself. God's Spirit has drawn us together. We don't have... uh, the same interests very often. Now, over time, as we spend time together, our interests begin to intertwine. But it doesn't start there. We didn't come here for any other reason except that we all love the Lord Jesus, filled with His Spirit. We want to praise Him and worship Him. Now, if we get here and we find out, hey, this guy likes guns too. This guy, this, this lady likes scrapbooking too. That, that's great. We like that. But even if there were none of that, we would say, but we have the Spirit of Christ. The church also provides circumstances where sympathy is shared amongst its members with, re- with regard to matters which typically wouldn't warrant sympathy. If you go, to, go into work, you, you miss your alarm, you wake up late, you fly into work, you're talking to your coworker, and he says, why are you so down today? And you say, I missed my alarm, I woke up late, I didn't get to spend the time in the Word that I, that I typically uh, spend, and I just, I just things are not right. Your lost coworker is going to say, huh, I don't get it. They don't understand that. You talk to another brother and explain that whole scenario and he's going to say, oh man, I've been there. I, I, I can sympathize with that. Praise the Lord He hasn't cast us off. There will be your lunch break. There will be this afternoon. Hang in there. I've been there. If you need any encouragement, let me know. I'll pray for you. We can sympathize there. A distinctively Christian virtue is one produced by the Spirit of Christ, patterned after the example of Christ, And for our purposes, one manifested in a special way amongst the people of Christ. Cultivate, Christian. Now we ask, what is sympathy? What exactly is sympathy? The word literally means together feeling. S-Y-N, with or together. And then pathos, feeling. Together feeling. With feeling. To be sympathetic is to feel with somebody else, to be affected by the affections of somebody else, to be sympathetic. This is, this is odd. God has made us this way. To be sympathetic is when what someone else is feeling causes you to feel something similar. That's sympathy. Noah Webster says that sympathy is produced through the medium of of organic impression, which means as one person observes in some way the feelings of another person, that observation of the feelings of the one does something inside of another person so that they begin to feel what that other person felt. Similar feelings. And this... Think about some examples. A mother is going to be sympathetic to another mother simply because of the role that they share. A lot of you mothers, when you heard about the uh, the Rios girl that was went missing, 
A lot of the mothers can immediately swell up. <gasps> what would it be like if, my, if I walked outside and my child was gone? You can feel that. Why? Because you share that with them. A mother to a mother. At the same time, you can rejoice when you hear the Lord has brought her home. What would it be like? Surely she thought her daughter was dead. And she came home. And you can feel that. Sympathy, mother to mother. A father is going to be sympathetic to his son. Why? Because of this shared familial relationship. You could add to that, hey, bud, I used to be a little boy. I, know, I kind of know what that feels like. Sympathy there. Sympathy is rooted in a concern that one person has for another person because of some interest that he or she has in the other person. Knowing the feelings of the one produces similar feelings in the other This interest in other people begins most broadly in the image of God that we all share together. In other words, there is something, if it's not been completely calloused over, in every human being that looks at another human being and can find some area of sympathy because God made us in His image. And we we share that. But the closer and closer we get to sharing uh, a commonality, the deeper and deeper our commonalities go, the greater the interest, the more intense the the fellow feeling is going to be, The bond, as it gets deeper and deeper, the sympathy gets deeper and deeper, and I would argue that there is no bond anywhere that goes as deep and as spiritual as the bond between Christians in a particular local church. So Christian sympathy is this. It's a fruit of grace wherein a believer is stirred in their own corresponding affections as they concern themselves with the affections of another. The word sympathy is found in two places in the New Testament. And when I say the word sympathy, I mean the Greek word that has come to be sympathy. Hebrews 4.15 and Hebrews 10.34. One of them is describing Christ, and the other is describing His people. Now my goal this morning is to simply let you see what sympathy looks like Tonight we're going to focus more on Christ as the supreme example, even though here there's no way to even look at this text without our hearts swelling in adoration for Christ. Hebrews 4.15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now the word, the language is clearly phrased in a negation. We, we do not or have a high priest who is unable. Put it in, in an assertion. We do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now how was that expressed or how was that explained? One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's explaining His ability to sympathize. His ability to share our feelings, to feel with us. It's not that Christ, our ascended, exalted high priest, cannot sympathize, but actually that He can sympathize because in His humiliation, He was tempted as we are. And we share that with Him. Now, what are the, the weaknesses that are described here? You might have infirmities. What does the word mean? Well, if it were a verb, it simply would mean to lack to have an incapacity of some sort, to lack a quality. But it's a noun here. So it's, 
It's specific things that we are too weak to bear. Specific things that we don't have the capacity to bear. So our exalted high priest is able to be affected personally by the things which affect us because he himself has experienced the very same temptations, the things in which we are too weak to bear, although he himself was not too weak to bear them. He bore them to the fullest extent. He knows the full weight of the bar on his shoulders, whereas we would buckle, he's borne it all without breaking, without giving in to the temptation. And so therefore, any, any endurance of a temptation that we might make it halfway through, he says, I can sympathize, I know it's hard. You make it all the way through a temptation without buckling, he can sympathize, he's been there. He's not a stranger to those things because he personally endured the same kinds of things. Therefore, he is able to sympathize, to to feel with corresponding affections what we feel as we endure temptations. And he does this because of his interest and his concern in our condition. He did not have to be made man. He willingly and voluntarily succumbed, came down to take that position. And because he done that willingly, now he can sympathize with our weaknesses. That's just a picture. The second passage is in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The word compassion there is the same word sympathy that was used in chapter 4. For you had sympathy on those in prison. Now if we go back one verse, verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had sympathy on those in prison. Now notice the the saints to whom this letter is written are called partners with other saints who are being persecuted. Why are they partners? For... Because you had sympathy on those who were in prison. In other words, because they had entered into a state of fellow feeling with those in prison, they became partners with them in that feeling, in in that, that suffering, that persecution. We get another insight into this in chapter 13 when he says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Notice there's a shared relationship. You also are in the body. You know what it would be like to be in prison. Since you have a physical body, and you can imagine what it must be like to be mistreated and thrown into prison, then use that information as you think of them who are actually being mistreated and actually in prison. Let their presence in prison as fellow believers cause you to remember them as if you were with them, as if it were you. Think. Here's how you sympathize. If I were in prison, how would I feel? They're human beings. I can assume the way I would feel is how they feel. Therefore, 
knowing that they feel the way I expect that they feel, I should be stirred up with some concern for them. And I share that feeling with them. That's sympathy. Christ entering into our position, sharing our feeling. Fellow saints, considering others who are in prison as if they themselves were in prison. A mother can be sympathetic to another mother because they share that role, but that's not distinctively Christian. A father can be sympathetic to his son because of the relationship that he bears to him, but that doesn't have to be distinctively Christian sympathy. But Christians in a particular church bear a relationship to one another that is unmatched in any sphere of life. We have the same spiritual father, Malachi 2.10, have we not all one father? We're members of the same spiritual body, 1 Corinthians 12, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We are all made to drink of one spirit. We share the same eternal hope, Ephesians 4.4, 4, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, we as Christians will endure the same types of external hatred from the world. 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We share all of these things. There's a common bond between us as members of this church and saints of God that doesn't exist between two mothers and doesn't even exist between a father and his unregenerate son. And I told my children, I'm closer to the regenerate members of this church than I am to them if they have not yet put their faith in Christ. An eternal bond is stronger than a physical bond, will outlast a physical bond. And I use that to plead with them, to trust in Him, to join this family with this one Father, this one Spirit, this one eternal hope. For Christians within the church who share the deepest closest relationship that humans can share, the fellowship of the Spirit of God, our interest in one another should be deep. And our concern for one another should be great. And our sympathies should be strong. Now how do we measure sympathy if it's going to be strong? How do we measure it? Well, I would say many ways. Your willingness to sympathize will show how strong your sympathies are. The speed of felt sympathy. How quickly are your affections stirred when you hear of the movement of the affections of another? That will show how strong your sympathy is. Intensity of feeling will show how deep that sympathy is. If someone, if you hear that a member in the church lost their father and you said, mm, okay, not much sympathy there. Depth of feeling. Here's the problem. If you're unwilling to sympathize, you're showing, I don't have interest in these people. If you're very slow to sympathize, it's probably because you don't have a very close relationship with these people. If one is greatly affected and another, upon hearing of it, is only slightly moved, it's probably because you just don't have very much interest in that person. And I would imagine that these shortcomings in fellow feeling can be found to some degree in every person in this room. As I describe Christian sympathy, you begin to think, I'm not very sympathetic. You might have interest in some, but not all. Or a few, but not many. You might feel some sympathy, but not a lot of sympathy. Maybe you feel sympathy for... A small selection, a few close friends in the congregation, but not others. 
Somebody in the congregation might be greatly affected by something and you're only slightly moved because that's not one of the ones you like. That's why we have to cultivate Christian sympathy. We've got to labor, beginning where we are, to work to see it grow. Now you might object and say, I'm just not naturally a sympathetic person in any sphere of life. It's not that the church is special. I'm just not super sympathetic like that. I'm not a feely person. I would say, number one, that's a lie. Somewhere you're showing some sympathy. But secondly, you say, I'm just not a sympathetic person. That's not how I am. That's not how I was raised. I just don't tend towards that. I would say, oh, I understand. We were all born in utter sin. We were all born selfish. We were all born unwilling to sympathize with other people. But saying, I'm a sinner, doesn't justify your sinfulness. Selfishness is sin. I'm arguing for Christian sympathy, which exceeds anything natural. It's produced only by the grace of God. It might build upon natural inclinations. There might be people who tend more towards sympathy than others. But this grace is not merely natural sympathy. And I'm arguing, arguing that we have to cultivate it. Not because we're already reaping a harvest. There's just so much sympathy in the church we can't stand it. We can't, we're trying to give it away to other people. Because I'm not saying that we have to cultivate it because that's where we are. Nor because I think there's not a lick of sympathy in the whole lot of you. That's not what I'm saying either. I'm saying we have to grow in this virtue. We need to work the soil of our minds and hearts expecting the rain of the Spirit to give life and to produce harvest. We must engage to cultivate Christian sympathy. Cultivate Christian sympathy is to begin and continue to take specific measures in order to foster in yourself growth in your willingness, ability, and opportunity to have your affection stirred in a manner related to and corresponding to the affections of others in the way that characterizes Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I trust at this point nobody's confused about what our covenantal obligation is. We've got to cultivate Christian sympathy. It's that simple. Secondly, I want to defend this statement biblically. These points will be shorter and I'll move quicker. Somebody might ask, where do I see in the Scriptures that Christians should engage in cultivating Christian sympathy? Where does the Bible say that? Chapter and verse, please. Like many of these kinds of summarized statements, there is no explicit text that says a church will be made up of people who, among other things, engage in cultivating Christian sympathy. If we expect that, we have that chapter and verse mentality, well, we're demanding, this, we're demanding the Scriptures to do something that they were never intended to do. The Scriptures didn't come to us as a manual or a catalog of church order. But I do believe that the concept is here, if we trace out several other clear concepts. Christian sympathy and its cultivation lies at the crossroads of, one, general Christian character, two, assumed Christian interaction, and three, expected Christian progress. Character, interaction, progress. Who we ought to be, who we're going to be it with, and we got to grow as we're being it. First, the whole of Scripture in the New Testament in particular lays out what is to be the general character of every child of God. We can say without hesitation that this character, as it pertains to their relationships to others, is to be one of love. Does anybody want to argue that Christians ought not be characterized by love? Is anybody of the opinion that I just said something strange? Of course not. 
So we've already heard 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not know God or who does not love does not know God because God is love. To know God, which is the fundamental experiential knowledge of Christianity, means to know the God who is love and to be filled with the Spirit of God who is love and to be filled with that love, that same love. So Christians are characterized by love. Christians are lawful people, abiding by the law of God as our moral standard, the Ten Commandments. And Christ said as He summarized that moral law, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law, the whole duty of the believer, summed up in the law of God, is summed up in love. Love to God and love to neighbor. That's not the gospel. That's the law. Christians are characterized by love. Secondly, as we've already seen, there is an assumed sphere of interaction in which all Christians find themselves, namely the church. All Christians are born again into the church in its invisible sense. And the way that that becomes visible is through membership in the local visible church. Church Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Assumed Christian interaction, we will be in the church. It's in the church that our love is made manifest. 1 John 4, 21. This commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And that begins first and foremost in the context of the church where we meet with our brothers. John Owen in his manual for church members, which he calls Eshkol, a cluster of grapes from Canaan, lays out this as rule number one in the duty of church members to one another. Rule number one, quote, Believers have a duty of affectionate, sincere, genuine love in all things toward one another, a love compared to that of Christ for the church. And then he gives this litany of texts. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 1 Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 1 Peter 1.22, Love one another from a pure heart. Romans 12.10, Love one another with brotherly affection. Does anybody doubt we ought to be loving one another? The Scriptures are clear. He follows up that list by saying, quote, Love is the fountain of all duties toward God and man the basis of all rules that concern the saints, the bond of communion, the fulfilling of the law, the advancement of the honor of the Lord Jesus and the glory of His gospel. We're going to be characterized by love. We're going to be in churches. We're going to love those who are in the church. And love is the fountain of all duties, which implies that our love is going to produce action. Internal action and external, external action. 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And sympathy 
is one such manifestation of Christian love within the church. As we've already read, the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Suffering together. Rejoicing together. What's that? That's sympathy. When that person is suffering, it makes me suffer. When that person is honored, it causes me to rejoice. What is that? That's Christian sympathy. So there's my argument. Christians will be characterized by love. Christians will be in churches. Christians will love their fellow members. Sympathy is an act of Christian love. Therefore, Christians are obligated to have Christian sympathy within the context of the local church. Any Christian who professes to love their brother, but who is unwilling or unable to suffer with them or rejoice with them, shows that they do not truly love them. Now, I didn't say they can't. I said they're un- if they're unwilling. Now we lay that beside another truth, namely that all Christians are expected to be ever and always increasing in the various manifestations of God's grace through the process of sanctification. God works in us to will and to do, and we work out what God is working in all the time. And so then we can assert that we are always to be about the business of cultivating the love which manifests itself in Sympathy. In other words, it's the duty of every member of this congregation to begin and continue to take specific measures to foster in yourself growth in your willingness, ability, and opportunity to have your affections stirred in a manner related to and corresponding to the affections of others in the way which characterizes Christ Himself and that by the power of of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, God has already given to you in the new creation a tendency toward Christian love. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have some inkling of love. He's already given it. And that love cannot by nature remain in you as a dormant grace because there are no dormant graces. God is not a dormant God. and The Spirit is not a dormant spirit. There are no dormant graces. It must come out of you in love to Him and love to the brethren. And so what God works in His people is meant to come out of them for the sake of others, especially in the congregation. That's the whole point of the church and sanctification. And so as I look to my brothers and sisters in the congregation those with whom I share this relationship, which is deeper than any other relationship I have on this earth. It's sympathy for them, which draws out my love toward them. And it's my love toward them that draws out my sympathy for them. I feel with you because I love you. And I love you because I feel with you. That's something God puts in His people. Sympathy is the linchpin which connects these two realities. Love coming in you from God and the love that is to come out of you toward other people. And we'll stop there for now. Before we get to the duties this evening, we can already begin to examine ourselves, right? We can begin to think, do You have love for Christ? Do you have love for His church? Do you have sympathy for the members of this church? 
Or we could flip it around the other way. We turn these things around into a proposition. If you have sympathy for the brethren in the church, that shows your love for the church, which proves your love for Christ. It's not the only proof, but it is a proof. We don't have to take anybody's word for it. Somebody says, well, I, I love Christ, I love the church. We can look at the fruit. Are they manifesting it outwardly? Owen could say of this love in his day, quote, At present it is a grace that shamefully has been lost amongst those who call themselves Christians to the dishonor of Christ and His gospel. It dishonors the gospel and Christ when we don't love one another and we can't sympathize with one another. I'm afraid this is very often the case in churches like ours. Christ could say to the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You can't bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call them apostles, themselves apostles that are not. You found them to be false. You endure patiently. You bear up for my name's sake. You're not growing weary. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. He could look at that church and say, I know that you're busy, you're strong. When sin comes into the congregation, you deal with it swiftly. If false teaching comes in the congregation, you prove it false and get rid of it. You're willing to suffer for Christ. You hate sensuality of the Nicolaitans. All of that, by all outward appearances, he said, you look like a doctrinally, morally strong church. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Not the one you love, the love. They were standing for Christ. They were willing to bear up for His namesake, but they had abandoned the love. They had all of the externals apart from the internal affections. Now, could that be said of us as a congregation or of you as a member? And what do your personal interactions, conversations, and prayers say about your love for the people in this room? Your willingness to talk to them or not talk to them. Your willingness to talk about them but not to them. Your willingness to talk to another person about this person but not to them. What, what do all of these things show? Do they show that you love and you're sympathetic? I'm, I'm also in the flesh. Would I want somebody talking to, to them about me? Well, no. Well, then I wouldn't do it. To them. That's sympathy. It causes us to change the way we function. It's not just getting along with each other, but how we relate in every sphere of church life. What do your actions say about your love for the people in this room? And what does that say about your love for Christ? Again, don't tell me you love Christ if you don't love the people that He's put you with providentially in the assembly. Now Paul said that I desire that in every place the men should pray. And so now what we'll do is enter into our typical time of prayer, hoping that the men of this congregation will intercede and bring the congregation to the presence of God.